0: And it looks like we're live. So, all right, welcome to Talking Christianity Apologetics. My name is Josh Gibbs, and tonight we have got Peter Gurry, Jeff Riddle, and James Snapp, Jr. And we're going to be talking about the text, uh, specifically answering the question, uh, which is, how should Christians approach textual criticism? Uh, Or you can word it another way, how should they deal with textual variations in our manuscripts? So, let's go ahead and get into it. Make sure
1: today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks, that one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friend, you don't know the gospel. The The wonder of the cross is that no one gets
2: injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sins. I think to what the scriptures teach, I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. He has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men and therefore anyone who,
1: who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provo- f-
2: provision for them and they are justly punished for their sins
1: question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people.
0: Okay, perfect. So, um, let's go ahead and get into it. I want to give you um, a brief introduction to each of our guests, and I'm going to pull them up on the screen and uh, should be able to roll from there. So, all right, Jeff, hey, welcome again to Talking Christian. It's good to have you back, man. And James, uh, good to have you back. Peter, you and I have actually never talked other than online, so... Uh, this, uh, for me personally, this is something that I've really been looking forward to, to having this particular conversation. Um, I think it's it's one that is really needed uh, when it comes to the text and uh, one that a lot of people are interested in. Um, I think that we've got kind of a variety of views uh, between the three of you on um, kind of what our perspective is on the text. Uh, but for our viewers' sake, I want to give you guys who are watching right now kind of a, an introduction to what the structure is going to look like tonight. And uh, before I do that, I want to share the link. So I'm going to give um, each of our guests the chance to kind of give introductions to themselves um, so that you can get to know who they are, um, uh, what they're working on, what they, what's kind of going on in their world right now, and how uh, you can get in contact with them or kind of look into some of the videos or lectures are some of the, the material that they've put out there to um, kind of access that, per, that perspective on the text. So if we could, uh, let's go ahead and start with you, Jeff, and uh, just kind of give an introduction to yourself, who you are, and how people can get to know you, and, and, and uh, just go from there.
1: Okay. Uh,
0: well, I'm Jeff Riddle, and I serve
1: as the pastor of Christ Reform Baptist Church in Louisa, Virginia. Louisa is a small community that's about equidistant between Charlottesville and Richmond, Virginia. And uh, we're probably the only, uh, definitely are the only confessional reformed Baptist church in central Virginia. And so we have people who come from Charlottesville, Richmond, surrounding regions uh, to attend our uh, congregation. So I've been there for 10 years as the pastor uh, I Had previous experience in ministry. I was I served as a pastor in Southern Baptist church life before I became a Reformed Baptist. Before that, I was uh, a missionary in uh, Budapest, Hungary. Served for a couple of years post uh, uh, communism. Taught in the Hungarian Baptist Theological Seminary uh, for a couple of years, and um, I am. Fairly regular uh, blogger at jeffriddle.net. And I have a podcast called Word Magazine that often touches on uh, text and translation uh, issues. So uh, that's a little bit about the the ministry. And then uh, I'm married, been married for over 30 years to my wife, Llewellyn. I have uh, five children. Uh, My oldest is uh, 26 and the youngest is 13 and um, my uh, wife was the primary home educator for my older kids. We had a real change in our lives this year because my two younger kids uh, started going to a Christian school, so they're having their first experience of uh, traditional school uh, life, and my wife started teaching uh, third grade at Grace Christian School in Stanton, Virginia. So uh, that's a little bit about me and my life, uh, just, just two thing, other things to mention and I might mention this at the end too uh, there's going to be a conference uh, in March, March 27th and 28th uh, at uh, the Five Solas Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Reedsburg, Wisconsin uh, that's going to be dedicated to the topic of text and translation and uh, it's called the, the Kept Pure in All Ages Conference, it's keptpure.com And if you're interested in that. And the other thing is, uh, over the last uh, year or so, uh, our church started a publishing ministry. And we just uh, recently put out uh, another book. And uh, I uh, wrote and edited uh, this. It's uh, John Owen on Scripture, Authority, Inspiration, Preservation. And it's available at Amazon.com. And what I did was I took two uh, essays from Owen on the Doctrine of Scripture that appear in volume 16 of his collected works and I simplified and abridged those uh, to make it accessible for someone, you know, um, Owen is notoriously difficult to read, uh, even if you're a native English uh, speaker, it's sort of laborious to read and so uh, i'm hoping that this wouldn't replace reading owen but it might be a supplement and an aid to people in reading owen and i was very i have, have been very influenced i'll probably mention this later by john owen the puritan john owen in his in his approach to the text of scripture so anyways those are just two uh more recent things to to share
0: i'll awesome. hand it over josh yeah that'll work perfect thank you and uh Let's go to you uh, next. Peter, if you could just kind of, same thing, give us an introduction, what you're working on, and uh, how people can become familiar with with you and what's going on in your world right now.
3: Uh, Sure. So, uh, my name is Peter Gurry, and I uh, teach New Testament at Phoenix Seminary here in Arizona, and I've been here for uh, almost three years doing that. And along with that, I also direct the Texan Canon Institute, which is about a year old, and I do that with uh, my Old Testament colleague, Dr. John Mead, whose expertise is on the text of the Old Testament and canon formation. Um, I uh, went to Bible school at Moody Bible Institute and then went off to Dallas Seminary, where I worked a lot with Dan Wallace, and uh, that encouraged my work in text criticism. And then I went to Cambridge and did my Ph.D. there under Peter Head. Uh, and since then, I've written a couple books, uh, two on the coherence-based genealogical method, and then one edited volume that's come out recently called Myths and Mistakes in New Testament Textual Criticism, which is meant to um, <clears throat> excuse me, help apologists avoid common myths uh, about New Testament textual criticism. And uh, I also have five kids. They're not as old as <laughs> Dr. Riddle's, uh, but I suspect they will be eventually. They'll get older. As they always do. Uh, one is just been born. She is about two months old. And then the oldest is eight years old. Uh, and they have, the oldest has lived in many different places. She has lived in Dallas, Cincinnati, Cambridge, and now Phoenix. So she has seen quite a lot of the world at her young age. That's awesome. Um, trying to think there's anything else. That's probably about it. If folks uh, are interested, they can uh, follow uh, the Evangelical Textual Criticism blog, You can just Google that and you'll find it. And I blog there fairly often. Um, And then we also are having a conference here next month called the Sacred Words Conference here in Phoenix with Dan Wallace and Peter Gentry and Stephen Dempster and a number of other other guys uh, on the issue of how we got the Bible. So things very
0: relevant to what we'll be talking about tonight. Very cool. Hey, I appreciate that, both you guys and James. Um, as well, just if you could, give us an update on what's going on in your world and uh, what you're working on, how people can get in touch with you, and uh, your material as well.
2: I'm James Snap, Jr., and I'm the uh, a preacher, a minister at the Curtisville Christian Church. It's uh, about 50 miles north of Indianapolis, so I'm surrounded by corn. And lately I've been, uh, well, I've I, I tried to maintain an active presence on, on, on Facebook and the uh, there's a group called NT Textual Criticism, and I I'm the uh, minister of that, and uh, we often will discuss uh, different variants, uh, various materials of New Testament textual criticism. Uh, lately, we uh, went through a discussion of Lectionary 60, which is an unusual lectionary because it was made uh, for a church uh, in in Paris, so it wasn't uh, a constant uh, in in the region of Constantinople, but it was interesting to see on the cover. There were runes, like Viking mm. letter, and so part of the uh, challenge was to decipher what the runes were there for, and uh, and, and that material is is both there at the group NT textual textual criticism, but it's also also uh, there's a full full description that you can read uh, at my blog, which is www.thetextofthegospels.com so if you uh, from time to time you can you can check out thetextofthegospels.com and and see a uh, Various things that I'm working on. Sometimes I'll dig into a textual variant. Other times it'll be uh, some, some something news or sometimes occasionally a, a book review. Uh, I recently reviewed uh, Myths and Mistakes. And uh, also uh, various materials about New Testament textual criticism, various textual variants, and uh, that sort of thing. Very, pretty, much, pretty much anything uh, related to, to the subject of recovering, and reconstructing, and affirming the text in the New Testament. Also uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, group NT textual criticism has a lot of files on, on there that, that can be do- downloaded for free uh, my book on the ending of the gospel of mark uh, which is called uh, authentic the case for mark 16, 9 20. uh it's on Amazon for 99 cents but you can go to the Facebook group NT textual criticism and uh, download it there for free uh, likewise my defense of the story of the woman caught in adultery uh 99 cents on Amazon, but you can go to the Facebook group and download it for free, as long as many, many other files. Uh, also, just in case Facebook goes all uh, cyber tyrant, uh, most of those files can be found uh, on 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 Miwi uh, at the a group by the exact exact same name. So, if you want to go to Miwi, become a member. It's all free, and uh, just look for the NT text that one there and um you will find it and uh, it's pretty easy to join I will just uh, see your name and say yep yeah, I'll let you in I have uh, a wife and three kids the three kids are all grown up and, uh, and uh, that's uh, Perry uh, Cassie and James the third and I mm. uh, used to have a cat and a dog but they both died this past year but uh, life goes on and um, that's uh, pretty much mainly what I've been doing lately awesome at least at least in the past week <laughs>
0: Awesome. Cool. Thanks for that. So I want to give you guys an update now um, on what the structure is going to look like. So uh, we're going to take five minutes for an introduction of each biblical perspective on the text to answer the question, uh, which we listed as our uh, kind of the the subject of what we want to talk about tonight, which is this, how should Christians approach textual criticism or how should they deal with textual variation in our manuscripts? And uh, we're going to start with Jeff Riddle. And then we're going to go to Peter Gurry, and James Snap is going to close us out on that. Um, we want to kind of keep the introductions at five minutes because uh, the whole purpose of this, in my opinion, is kind of have more of a, uh, an organic um, conversation about the text and kind of bring up uh, questions to each other and uh, just run with the conversation if we need to or if we want to. So um, what we've done is we've decided that each person is going to have four questions, And uh, we'll just rotate one question for each person to the next person to the next person. And uh, you direct it at whoever it is that you want to direct this question towards. That person is going to have seven minutes to respond. And uh, if we want to kind of dive into that particular portion of the conversation a little more, we're just going to run with it until we decide, hey, let's move on. Let's go to the next question, and we'll do that. Um, So then once we finish that and we decide, hey, you know what, we're coming up on... Uh, About two hours, which is kind of the timeline, what we would like to keep this particular episode to. Uh, Then we'll go to three-minute closing statements for each person and wrap it up from there. So, all right. Well, um, I think that that should cover it right now. It looks like we've got about uh, 20 people that are viewing this live right now. I just put the links up. Um, If anybody wants to view it live, they can. Um so we'll see at the end if people are tuning in and they want to ask questions if you guys want to take some time for that um just let me know and we can make that happen too so all right Dr. Jeff Riddle will turn it over to you for your 5 minute introduction okay i,
1: I did not read this out uh, to, to time it so I, so you tell me
0: if i if i go too long oh yeah you know so, what i'm so, going to put a timer up i, I <laughs> I should have said that. <laughs> he's,
3: he's speaking of two preachers, so there's really? a little timer on you guys Yeah
0: go. I'll just let you know hey you've got you're right yeah, you got it. okay. Okay, so first of all, let me just say thanks to Josh for the
1: invitation to be part of this podcast And let me also say thanks to my fellow guests, to Peter and to James. Uh, As I was thinking about this occasion, it crossed my mind that uh, it would be great if my name was John. Then we could have Peter, James, and John. Uh, But unfortunately, it's Jeff, so it's going to have to be Peter, James, and and Jeff. Um, In all seriousness, I appreciate the invitation to do this. I have benefited from uh, the scholarly labors and uh, the speaking of both of these men. And so uh, I'm sure that this is going to be an edifying and charitable interaction that we're going to have. I had the opportunity to meet James a couple years ago um, at the Pericope Adulterite Conference at Southeastern Seminary. We talked briefly. I've not met Peter uh, yet face to face. um, And James was even on as a guest on Word magazine a couple years ago. Uh, I think it was Word magazine 53. Uh, And he discussed his book that he just mentioned on uh, the pericope Adulteri. So the topic is how should Christians approach textual criticism? Uh, I would describe my position as the confessional text position. It's called the confessional text position because I believe it best represents the position that is expressed in the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Savoy Declaration and the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith in Chapter 1 and Paragraph 8. And maybe at some point I can read that. I'm not going to take the time to read it uh, right now. But it essentially says the Bible is immediately inspired in the original languages of Hebrew and Greek, and that it has been kept pure in all ages uh, by the providence of God. Uh, I might say that I think that maybe one of the biggest factors that differentiates our positions may be our confessional commitments, because I believe Peter is an evangelical, most likely influenced by people like Dan Wallace, who's going to be a guest at the conference that he's soon going to be hosting. James is from the Campbellite, as I understand it, the restorationist movement. is sort of a back to the Bible, and a, a, a non creedal sometimes even anti creedal movement. Uh, No creed but Christ, uh, no book but the Bible, no law but love, and I personally came from a Southern Baptist background, sort of an evangelical background, but 15 years ago, I discovered confessional Reformed Christianity. I found it to be very winsome, very satisfying, and my position on Scripture has been fundamentally shaped by my confessional commitment to the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. This confessional text position holds that the authoritative text of the Bible is found in the Masoretic texts of the Hebrew Old Testament and the Textus Receptus of the Greek New Testament. We furthermore believe that it is best to use vernacular translations of the Bible based on these texts and to use a formal correspondence method in making such translations. This view does not hold that it is our task to reconstruct the elusive original autograph or autographs, but it contends that the true text has been faithfully kept pure in all ages by God's singular care and providence. So our method stresses preservation rather than reconstruction. And I think that differentiates my position from both that of Peter and that of James. We believe that there is what Richard Brash has called a practical univocity between the divine originals, the autographs, and what has been preserved in the copies, the autographs, best represented by the printed editions of the traditional text. So when we read the received text, we are reading the autographs and we do not have to reconstruct them. With the protestant reformers and the protestant orthodox we stress that scripture is theonoustos inspired or god-breathed and autopistos self-authenticating a key verse would be john 10 27 my sheep hear my voice and i know them and they follow me this means that we believe that passages preserved in the majority of extant manuscripts like the traditional ending of mark and the woman taken in adultery in John 7:53 through 8:11, as well as some passages preserved only in a minority tradition of Greek or even sometimes versional witnesses, like the Ethiopian's confession in Acts 8:37 or the three heavenly witnesses in 1 John 5:7 and 8, are part of the genuine and inspired Word of God, and can be confidently read, studied preached and taught by God's people. This view was the view that was held by the men who framed the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy Declaration, and the Second London Baptist Confessions of Faith. For a historical overview of the confessional text position among the Reformed Orthodox, I would recommend reading volume two of Richard Muller's book, post-Reformation reformed dogmatics. This view was held by men like the Puritan John Owen, by Francis Turretin, and later by men like R.L. Dabney. It is the view of the Trinitarian Bible Society founded in 1831. In recent times, varieties of this view have been held by men like Edward F. Hills, Theodore Letus, Garnet Howard Milne, as well as by popular preachers like Joel Beakey. That said, we acknowledge that at present, this is a minority position, even among reformed Christians. Nevertheless, in the last few years, there has developed what seems to be a surprising work of God, a small but growing organic movement among individuals and churches to return to the confessional text as the standard for faith and practice much of this has come with an understanding of and dissatisfaction with the fruit of the reconstructionist modern critical text methods and its ever-changing texts and translations there is an alternative and it is the confessional text position and that's the position that i hold and with that, I yield my time Okay. The house perfect. managers.
0: Um, I will turn it over to Dr. Peter Gurry real quick, but I want to make sure that I get this announcement into those of you who are viewing live. We are going to open it up to questions uh, if you would like to uh, send us in a question, and I'm sure that you will have questions. So you can email me at talkingchristianityapologetics at gmail.com or you can send us a voicemail. Uh, which if you go to any podcasting platform, if you go in the description, there's a link uh, to send a voicemail. So any podcasting platform, go to the description of any one of our episodes and uh, click send a voicemail and we'll, we'll be able to get a voicemail that way and we should be able to play it and then answer the question if you want to do it that way as well. So, Or you can send a message on Facebook or YouTube or wherever you're viewing live. So, All right. Well, with that, Dr. Peter Gury, I will turn it over to you. Thank you.
3: Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks uh, to both you guys. Um, so I probably won't take five minutes to explain it because it's pretty straightforward. Um, my position on text criticism is shared by uh, most New Testament scholars, both those of a non-evangelical stripe and those who are evangelical, and it's been a position that's been held by most New Testament evangelical scholars for a long time. Um, if you want a good expression of it by a <clears throat> solid evangelical, you can look at B.B. Warfield's uh, book on text criticism. That's his view. But if I would boil it down to one basic principle, it is this. Uh, it is that the reading that best explains the other readings at any point of variation is the one most likely to be original, and therefore is the one that we should adopt as authoritative, that we should preach from and teach from and try to live out. Thankfully, in the vast majority of cases, the decision that we have to make does not affect things like our Christian practice and certainly not our fundamental uh, Christian doctrines, but there are times where variants are significant enough that they need to be dealt with, and when that occurs, I think we should try to adopt the reading that best explains all the others. With that, I could add that um, my view holds that there is no single manuscript or group of manuscripts, there is no printed edition, and there is no group of printed editions that is always right at every point of variation. So I don't think that any of Dr. Riddle's printed Texas receptices are always right. I don't think that any, uh, I don't think that the group of Byzantine manuscripts, when they all agree, are always right. I don't think that Codex Vaticanus uh, and Sinaiticus are always right. Um, However, that's not to say that all manuscripts are created equal. Some really are better than others. And the way to determine that is that same basic principle, that where they disagree with each other, you look at the readings and decide through a series of criteria and skill in working with manuscripts and learning about what scribes do in general, especially when they make mistakes, and you can discern which manuscripts are generally or more often better than others, and then you should, when doubt, privilege those over the other ones. So oftentimes, in my uh, particular approach uh, known as reason-eclecticism, that has meant preferring the earliest manuscripts over the later ones, okay, as a general principle. Uh, and then I might just add that theologically, <clears throat> I am very comfortable affirming a doctrine of preservation, but what I do not hold is to a doctrine of what I would call meticulous preservation, and in its extreme form, I don't think anyone holds to it, and maybe no one ever has, and that extreme form I would define as the belief that God's words have been preserved at all times, in all places, for all believers, perfectly, right? Right. Uh, and I'd, I'd be interested—well, we can talk about this later, but i uh, be interested to hear if Dr. Riddle thinks that is true or untrue. But in my experience with people who hold the confessional position, they will readily admit that, no, there are times that have had better manuscripts. There are certainly places that have had better manuscripts or better texts, et cetera, et cetera. So part of my theological position on this is I don't think I'm in a privileged position over the rest of God's people throughout church history— I mean, in some ways, I think I'm in a much more privileged position because we have far more manuscripts to work with. But I don't want to have a theology of preservation that takes the word of God away from his people before I showed up. And so I want a doctrine of preservation that, first of all, of course, is biblical and that beyond that does not undercut the, um, the foundation for the rest of God's people at all times and all places. So that's pretty important to me. Oh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I should add to that. Uh, a, a part of the reason why I don't hold to meticulous preservation, uh, the main reason is I don't think it's taught in Scripture. And so, um, <clears throat> while I like the London Baptist Confession quite a lot, I don't think it can be defended that the Scripture teaches its own meticulous preservation, nor that it's been that the Bible doesn't teach that because if it did. I don't know how we could believe it given the evidence that
0: we have in our manuscripts. So I'll leave it at that. Perfect. Okay. And uh, to close us out, James Snap, I'm going to turn it over to you.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you, Josh.
2: I encourage a a text critical approach called equitable eclecticism. And here are seven things that set it apart from some other methods. Uh, One difference between the equitable eclectic approach and the other approaches, is that the text of equitable eclecticism is actually eclectic. The Byzantine text form, by definition, is not eclectic, it's, it's all Byzantine. Uh, the critical text of Nestle Island is ostensibly eclectic, and uh, the Byzantine text gets cited in the apparatus a lot, but when you actually look at the text of, say, Galatians chapter 1, or Matthew Matthew 1-10, through 10, look at Galatians chapter 1, and you'll see that it's a text that is 99 percent alexandrian a second the byzantine text is recognized as a stratified text at its base are ancient readings that echo the text used in the second and third centuries in a large region from greece to syria but it also contains some secondary readings most of which magnify or clarify the meaning of the older readings are some readings and are the effects of mixture. Now, how does one discern uh, which readings are ancient and which ones are not? Internal considerations come into play there, but so does the consultation of other text types representing the text in other locales. So, range of support support for a reading is often a decisive external factor. Third, the Byzantine text and the leaders of the church Are treated realistically. Manuscripts are not treated as if they have to do the impossible, and Greek-speaking church leaders are not dismissed as if they wanted to make the text mean something drastically new. We don't have examples of manuscripts with a strongly Byzantine text from before the 300s, but before the 300s manuscripts were produced on papyrus, and papyrus is simply not capable of surviving in climates with high humidity. To demand that we need to see manuscripts from Greece and Thessalia and Galatia and Syria made before the 300s before we will believe that those regions had a local text and that it was essentially Byzantine is to demand that papyrus in those regions must do the impossible. And instead of believing that the Greek-speaking church leaders in the 300s and 400s in those regions basically threw away the text that the previous generation had handed down, it is more reasonable to believe that the churches in those continued to use basically the same text that they inherited from their predecessors, adjusting it in minor ways to magnify and clarify its meaning. A fourth, a special weight is not automatically assigned to a manuscript because of its age. The transmission lines of the text in some medieval manuscripts are better than the transmission lines of the text in some much older manuscripts. For example, using N.A. 27 as the basis of comparison in the Epistle of Jude, Papyrus 72, a very early manuscript from Egypt in the 200s or early 300s, has 149 non-original letters and is missing 250 original letters. Meanwhile, minuscule 6 from the 1200s has 89 original letters and is missing 77 original letters. The text of Jude in this medieval manuscript is much more accurate than the text in that Egyptian papyrus. A lot of corruption entered P72's transmission line in a very short amount of time. The age of a manuscript means nothing if somewhere in the transmission line the copyists were incompetent. But as long as textual critics prefer old manuscripts simply because they are old, no matter how badly the text has been obviously mangled, they will ignore some much more reliable, more valuable younger witnesses. Uh, This is a problem with the Tyndale House Greek New Testament. Uh, Fifth, the fifth point, Heinlein's Razor, is very much in play as a text-critical canon. And that is, do not attribute to villainy conditions that simply result from stupidity. For example, if 500 manuscripts from different locales have a certain word or phrase, and five manuscripts representing one locale do not have it, and the word or phrase is clearly vulnerable to to paraplepsis, uh, then it's more likely that it was accidentally skipped than it was deliberately, villainously inserted. This consideration has a significant impact on the text of the New Testament. No transmission line and no copyist is immune from accidents, as we see in Vaticanus in John 17:15 15, or in Sinaiticus in Matthew 24:35. When accidental loss is recognized and deliberate expansion is not imagined arbitrarily, several significant readings are retained in the text which are currently rejected by some modern English versions. For instance, Matthew 12:47, Matthew 18:35. Mark 10.24, Mark 11.26, Mark 15.28, just to name a few. A sixth, the tendency of the equitable eclectic approach to favor longer readings when their shorter arrivals are explained as the results of simple accidents is consistent with the confirmation supported by several researchers in the past 30 years that the canon prefer the shorter reading is simply incorrect. In 1901, Eberhard Nussell described prefer the shorter reading as a fundamental principle of textual criticism. So, once that's been proven wrong, or neutralized, why would anyone cling to a text that was compiled on the basis of a working hypothesis for which there's almost no evidence, and a fundamental principle that has been shown to point in the wrong direction? As far as I can tell, it's simply a matter of convenience and tradition. The equitable, eclectic approach is not built on that hollow foundation, and it thus provides a superior means to reconstruct the original text of the New Testament on a scientific basis. A seventh, and finally, the equitable eclectic approach involves restraint on the part of the textual critic. No conjectural emendations are placed in the text, even if a critic can imagine a reading that elegantly explains its rivals. The entire compilation should have an empirical basis. And if you go to my blog, thetextofthegospels.com, and search for Equitable Eclecticism, you should find a two-part essay that explains this approach in more detail. Thank you.
0: All right, perfect. So I think we've got a pretty good foundation for those of you who are watching to understand the three different perspectives. Uh, James Snap is going to hold to the equitable eclectic view. Jeff Riddle is holding to the confessional view, and uh, Peter Gurry, you hold to you would would you call it the critical text? I don't, what 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 would be the mm-hmm. name of the view that you hold? Well, most people call it reason eclecticism. Reason eclecticism. Okay, perfect. So. And with that said, guys, we're going to go into our first uh, line of questioning, and, and uh, that'll lead us to uh, Jeff Riddle. You, you're up first, so uh, you just tell us who you yeah. want to direct the question to, and then that person will have seven minutes to respond. We can decide if we want to run with that topic or not. So, turn it over to okay. you.
1: Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna direct this question to Peter first. I'll have one for James uh, next when ne- next time my turn comes around. So, Peter. <laughs> Recently, on the Evangelical Textual Criticism blog, your fellow text critic and co-author of your book on the CBGM, uh, Tommy Wasserman, wrote the following in a comment. He said, I have no intention of trying to prove that this or that textual variant is the original word of God. I would like to work as a text critic as if God didn't exist, so to speak. My question is, do you agree with this statement? How does it reflect the current postmodern approach to scripture? And do you perceive any dangers that this method poses? How would you respond to Tommy Wasserman regarding this statement? And again, Both his statement that he doesn't see it as his job to prove any textual variant is original or is the word of God. And also that he wants to, I guess, act with neutrality as if God didn't exist with no presuppositions, doctrinal or spiritual, in approaching the scriptures.
3: Sure. Yep. So I'm going to respond to that position rather than Tommy, because if I were going to respond to Tommy, I would do that in person, obviously. But, uh, no, uh, I did not. I was, obviously I was asking no, I hypothetically. No, I know. I'm just saying I'm not going to really you,
1: know. And by the way, let me, let me just yeah. say too, I don't want to eat up the time, but I, I met Tommy also at the same conference at Southeastern where I met, uh, James Snap and I, uh, really enjoyed talking with Tommy. I, I'm not saying this to yeah, yeah, bash him. True. I really appreciated, uh, talking mm-hmm. with him and, uh, but anyways, but nevertheless, What's your response to that statement?
3: Yeah, good question. Uh, so I, do, I would never, I would never say it that way. And my basic response would be: I hope, as Christians, we don't ever do anything as if God doesn't exist, even so to speak. So in those comments and that thread, of people go to the ETC blog, they can see Tommy's uh, clarifications of what he meant, and I think he explained himself uh, in a way that's much better than saying he does text criticism as if God doesn't exist, so to speak. Uh, but no, I would never say it that way, and I don't think any Christian should do anything as if God does not exist. Do you want me to expand on that? or what about,
1: Well, I, you could. We, maybe we could talk about it. But what about the, the previous part of the question uh, when he said, uh, or his statement, that um, he has no intention of attempting to prove that any textual variant is the original word of God, and maybe this speaks to how the purpose or goal of text criticism has changed right. among those who are practitioners of reason, eclecticism, yeah. uh, the postmodern influence on text criticism, so that whereas in the in the twentieth century, Metzger and others would have been saying we're we're trying to find the original autograph, what Paul wrote or or, or what. Uh, you know, Matthew wrote originally, but it seems that that goal has been um, you know, put aside. Now there's talk about trying to to get the initial text or the earliest text possible. But what do you what do you perceive the goal of textual criticism is in the academy?
3: Yeah, so uh, there's a couple things there. One, I think in Tommy's statement, you'd have to ask him, obviously to know for sure, but, I think it, it, when I read that comment, the key thing that I saw and there was his qualification, he's not trying to find the original text, and then he qualified it, what did he say, something like, that is the word of God? And I think what he, what he was trying to say, and again, you have to ask him to, to clarify, what I assume he meant was something like, I'm not doing text criticism with a theological need for absolute certainty, Instead he's doing it historically and he's asking historical questions and he's yet letting the evidence drive his conclusions without letting his theology predetermine them that's that would be my guess uh, again you'd have to ask him for sure um, if you want to know about the goal of text criticism in the modern Academy that's going to depend on the on the person and the editor so for example, the Tyndall editors to my understanding are still happy uh, happily. Pursuing the original text. Uh, as you may know, they do not print any conjectures in their edition either, and that's a matter of principle on their part. Um, so there's a major edition. When I asked Mike Holmes about this in his edition, that's a reason eclectic edition. He also says that he's following the early he's uh, trying to attain the earliest attainable text or the original text. Uh, I don't think that he necessarily makes a big distinction between those. Um, the initial text is something that's become quite important in relation to the coherence-based genealogical method. And there's plenty I could say about this. I've written on this, uh, at some length. So I'll give you the very short version. And if folks are interested, you could save way more money than you want to and buy a hundred dollar book. <laughs> that's my published dissertation, but here's the very short version. The, in, the term initial text, uh, refers to the text from which our extant evidence descended from. Now that definition is very important because that definition allows for the initial text to be the author's original text, right? Obviously, the author's original text may well be the text from which all the extant evidence has descended. However, it also allows for the possibility that that's not the case, and uh, the best that we can do in some some instances is, um, you know, a text that is not the author's text but maybe was edited later or um, various other options. In some cases, if people posit, say, two autographs by an author, a New Testament author, it can allow for things like that. However, the editors who have coined that term are quite clear in their editions so far that they see no reason to think that there is any difference between their reconstructed initial text and the author's texts, in this case of Acts and the Catholic letters. So is the, is the definition of the initial text important? Yes. Is this shift uh, real? Yes. Is it a is it a significant shift? In my opinion, no. It's not a major shift. So, in my book with Tommy, I think I call it something like a where do I call it? A minor shift or something yeah. like that. Well, I don't, maybe, no, I'm not convinced maybe, it has anything to do with postmodernism. Sorry. Well, well, maybe
1: I don't want to go, you know, so much in, in discussing the you know definitions of the initial text, but I mean, do you perceive there is a danger in the movement in modern academic text criticism away from maybe the, the the 19th and 20th century goal of finding the original in using the reconstruction method and the and the modern method, which seems to say we can't really find out what the original was, and maybe we'll give people three or four options. And I'm thinking about the way that this sort of trickles down to the pew, you have something like the New Living Translation. You come to the end of Mark, uh-huh. and it includes the so-called shorter ending of Mark, which right. is only a handful of manuscripts that are all late, and this has never been accepted uh, you know, universally by the church as scripture. But now all it's right. inserted in the New Living Translation alongside of Mark 16, 9 through 20, and then they also include the Freer Logion in there as well, so that the idea is, I called it Build-A-Bear, <laughs> um, you sort of construct your own text, and people like D.C. Parker, in fact, have explained it exactly that way, thats he thinks that's wonderful, it would be wonderful to have sort of everybody creates their own text of scripture, uh, it's very po- postmodern, but As a traditional christian it's that's alarming to me because i i I think the person in the pew has a, uh, a a a fundamental view that when he opens the bible it is the word of god and he wants to read what is he is certain is the word of god and more than that i think experientially as i said earlier because it is inspired and because it is God-breathed, mm-hmm. it is self-authenticating to the reader, so that yeah. Mark so if it's nine through twenty is scripture because it demonstrates itself to be that
3: right. Whether so modern I,
1: critics trust trust that or not, based on the
3: external evidence, right. So if it's self-authenticating, I suppose somebody could say, well, the fear logion is self-authenticating to me as scripture, and so it is scripture, right. So. I, we could probably talk about that at some more length. I think there's a real problem, though, in the dots you've connected. So we could talk about David Parker, and I think his view of the living text is, is very problematic, um, both for historical reasons but also for theological reasons, and I do think it is to be rejected. Um, so, yeah, I'm totally on board with you. I do not do not accept his, his view, uh, and I don't think Christians should either. I also don't think text critics should either, or historians <laughs> for that matter. But um, but you've conflated you know the the New Living Translation with David Parker, and I think it would be really misleading for our listeners to think that somehow David Parker has influenced the New Living Translation, because that came out well before him, and I cannot imagine that it had any influence on I, the evangelical I, translators. I, yeah, yet.
1: I wouldn't imply there's a direct link, but there. But yeah. don't you think that there is? Don't you think there is a connection um, uh, uh, philosophically between? changes that have happened in the field of text criticism and again what's trickling down i'm not saying that parker had any hand in the new living translation but it's the mindset the idea of we have to put many options and we're not completely sure of what the text is we'll leave it to the reader uh, to subjectively determine this for, for himself or herself. And just, just one other thing, yeah. just to follow up on this, and I'll be quiet. Yeah. Um, you know, D.C. Parker, and again, I'm, I'm not an expert on him. I've read some things he's written. But, I mean, he's one of the major editors for the editio Additi- Critica Mayor. He he is a gatekeeper of the, as I understand it, he's retiring, I think, but he's he's been a gatekeeper for the scholarly handbook um he's exerting a lot of influence on uh the texts of scripture in the academy is he you don't think he is
3: no i mean i think he's he's, he's, no i think he's a tremendously important uh text critic for sure and he's done some excellent work i mean if you haven't read his his book on codex bazi you're missing out but um but no, I mean, we haven't even seen his edition yet, so why would we prejudge the matter? But I actually think this is, a, this is a place where the initial text is a positive thing, because, and I argue this in my dissertation, that somebody like Mike Holmes, who's still committed to attaining the earliest original text, thinks the author's text is available and reconstructable, and somebody like David Parker, who thinks we should go after this living text, or that that's what we have, uh, they could both do text criticism pretty much the same way, and agree on the same initial text. Yes. And David Parker might walk away from that saying, I've reconstructed an initial text that is not the author's text. And Mike Holmes might look at that same exact initial text, exact same string of words, and say, I think that's the author's text, do you see? And so at that point, we're arguing about, either about matters of just simple definition, and we just don't agree on definitions, or we're we're arguing about, uh, you know, something that may or may not have happened in history or about how John's Gospel was written, et cetera, et cetera. But if the actual text that they're agreeing on is the exact same, I, I don't really see what I should be terribly worried about. you see. So in some ways, the initial text, as it as it's defined, can bring people together who may not agree on how far back the initial text goes, but nevertheless will agree on what the initial text is. yeah. So, uh, I suppose I could say more about the living the living translation, but I'm not sure. Um, I mean, it, I think, it, what, uh, James, what was your principle? We're getting a bit of feedback here, guys. FYI. But James, you had a principle of one of yours that was do not attribute to malice. What can be attributed to, to what was it? Uh,
2: that's, uh, H- Highlands. Highland's principle? H- Highland's razor.
3: Yeah, so I think there's a general principle that I have, and that not every bad decision that's made is attributable to some larger shift in philosophy or postmodernism per se, right? So in that case, I think the New Living Translators are looking at the apparatus and saying, hey, there actually are three different endings for Mark's Gospel. Let's give readers all three of them. That, yeah, that's probably English Bible mm-hmm. readers need to be presented with the Freer Logion in their English Bible. Um, But, you know, you said your assumption was the shorter ending is not Scripture and has never been accepted by anyone as Scripture, and yet, what are we to make of it in manuscripts? Was that not Scripture for someone, and was it not accepted as such by someone, right? I mean, it may not have been very many Christians, but it seems to me that every manuscript at some point, with maybe a few exceptions, was someone's Bible, and therefore was a text received by someone, right? Maybe not by all, um, so not a textus receptus in that sense. So again, do, you, I, do
1: you think do you think that the short do you think that that shorter ending is inspired? Do I know? Oh no. Okay. In that case, then you would say that those people who who accepted it and put it used it were in error.
3: They yeah, were, I mean, just like they, I think they were they were, in,
1: they yeah. were looking to something yeah. that wasn't scriptural.
3: No, of course. And so I would I would say well they were they were in error. Right. And so they, would I. And, so would I. Yeah. Sorry. But well, my James, point is to yeah. say that they did accept it as scripture, whether we like it or not. Right. But they, so we think they're wrong. Right wrong. They were wrong, they of course. Were wrong. But they still accepted it, right? So we can't just say, "Well, because it's been accepted, therefore it is." I think we have to have some other set of criteria to decide what is and what isn't yeah. the original text. Yeah. yeah, we'll probably get into this later, but I mean, you know, because you mentioned directly, you know, in your talk, and maybe
1: you have a question later on about, you know, what what does "kept pure in all ages" mean? Yeah. Um, and you know, my view would be just because somebody, you know use the text doesn't mean that it's that it's received or accepted
0: um but anyways james wanted to say something earlier yeah james it looked like you wanted wanted to get something in there (laughs) i want to give you the opportunity Uh, before we just uh,
2: going back to this shorter ending of mark um i think perhaps the 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 pivotal question is um when the uh, compilers of the the nlt the and the publishers of it. Look at the shorter ending. They know very well. They know very well that nobody thinks the shorter ending is original, and yet they put it in the text anyway and and give it to people who are not as informed as they are. Who think, oh, maybe this is the original, when they know very well this is not an original reading. Why did they do that? George Salmon, uh, back in the 1800s, anticipated that line of reasoning when they considered what Hort had done, and Hort had also put the shorter ending in his compilation and the thinking was it's it's uh this is a humorous story um uh, Sam, salmon proposed it's it's like a man who wants to invite his best buddy but his best buddy is kind, kind of a laid-back a good old boy and the wife is like i don't want him at my party um and so she goes out and she invites a beggar to the party so when so when the 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 the, the this guy's guy's friend comes to the party he'll he won't think, oh, well, it's great. I have arrived. I am at this party. He won't be able to think that because he'll see he'll see the beggar there. Just think it through, and you'll get the idea. <laughs> Sorry, can't.
0: that's good. Okay, now let's uh, let's go ahead and, and turn it back to Peter Gurry. So you this will be your chance to ask a question, and then we'll 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 go to James after that.
3: Okay, uh, I can ask anybody.
0: Yep, anybody you want.
3: Okay. Uh, so let's see. Okay. Um, so James, I guess uh, a question I have for you is, do you see your, your position as fundamentally different from reason eclecticism or do you see it? uh, I would see it as, and you can correct me if if this is wrong. I would see your view as a form of reason eclecticism that just takes the Byzantine text more seriously than those who've practiced it in the past. Is that fair or would you want to?
2: Well, that, that's sort of my, the, the very first point that I made, is, is that, uh, yes, it, the, the one difference is that it actually is eclectic. Uh, when you look at the text of reasoned eclecticism, um, is it really reasoned, or is it simply, this is my starting team, and it's all Alexandrian manuscripts, and if the Alexandrian manuscripts break their leg, then we'll go to our backup, which is either Byzantine or Western. But really, the Alexandrian text, the Alexandrian uh, transmission stream, dominates the text of reasoned eclecticism. There's, there can't be any doubt about that. I think anybody that that, kn- that knows the text would, 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 you, would acknowledge that.
3: Do you think, James, that the, the, it's fair to say that the Byzantine text, as you define it, also dominates the Byzantine manuscripts?
2: Uh, it, In other words, they... That's kind of superfluous to say that the, the Byzantine text dominates the Byzantine manuscripts, so yeah. Well, let me let me say it again. Would you would you
3: agree that the Byzantine manuscripts share basically most of the same text that the Alexandrian manuscripts have?
2: Well, all manuscripts basically say share most of the main text. So right, okay, okay. So what we're really talking about is
3: a small percentage of differences between them, right?
2: I think we've always acknowledged that. Yeah. Okay, just checking. Small, I should say small relative to the whole. Yeah.
3: Yeah, of course. Right. Okay. Great. helpful.
0: Okay. Well, um, anybody want to piggyback off of that, or do you want to go to James for your question next? All right. Let's go to James, and you've got it.
2: Okay. Uh, the first question is for Jeff Riddle. Uh, Jeff, you mentioned the uh, the confessional statement that the uh, text is uh, providentially preserved and kept pure in all ages. Yeah. Now, when uh, when we actually look at medieval manuscripts, we, we see that there are some variations. We see that there's uh, various elements of the textus receptus that, that are minority readings, but also we see lectionaries, and lectionaries are an often overlooked but very important aspect of the medieval text. When we compare the text of a, a running continuous text manuscript and the text of a commentary manuscript and the text of a lectionary, um, you can't look at those three kinds of manuscripts and not re- re- realize that there are variations. In the lectionaries there are incipit phrases that begin each, each, each lection, there, there are phrases at the end, there are ways in which the text is chopped up and rearranged and put back together, there are ways that the text was, was reformatted for Easter time. Uh, there were clearly variations in the way the text was, was, was formatted, and sometimes that involved whole phrases being there or not being there. And uh, everybody that was familiar with lectionaries compared to continuous text manuscripts would 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 be aware of these differences. Um, there are also sometimes uh, closely contested variants. They're not so closely contested nowadays, but they were back in the 1500s, like in like in Romans 12:11, where you know, are we serving the Lord? or Are we serving the time? Because we have this orthod- orthographic uh, difficulty. Now. Um, do you think that anybody in the 1600s, if you were to ask them, you know, when we say the text has been kept pure in all ages, would a lectionary's text be considered pure? Because I don't see anybody saying we must avoid the lectionaries because the lectionaries were in use everywhere in, in, in the Greek-speaking churches. So would they consider the lectionary's text to be pure? And if I could follow up on that. If a lectionary text is pure with that small degree of variation... Uh, it is small but it is a degree of variation Uh, why not uh, widen that a bit so that when they said pure they don't mean every little detail of form but they mean something to the degree of the message that the text is conveying is not materially changed the same message that you get in a continuous text manuscript you'll get in a lectionary it's just a matter of putting it back together Mm
1: -hmm.
2: there you go yeah um,
1: so First of all, the, the, the phrase kept pure in all ages is a confessional term. It's from the Westminster Confession of Faith, yeah, 1646. Yeah. And so if you're going to use that term, then I think you have to go back and see what did they mean by that term. Yeah, and I would, re- I, would re- I would recommend reading Garnet Howard Milne's work, Kept Pure in All Ages, where he goes through, looks at, you know, what did the what did the Puritans mean when they said pure, um, and so forth, and, and and what I think happens sometimes, and I, I I ran into this, have run into this recently with Elijah Hickson, um, you know, who is saying what well, kept pure in all ages means thus and such and thus and such and thus and such, and he's putting on it a. A new definition, an evangelical definition, a contemporary evangelical definition of what "kept pure in all ages" means, and uh, it's anachronistic. So, when I say that that I affirm, um, you know, Chapter One and Paragraph Eight of uh, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, it's this statement: the Old Testament in Hebrew, which was which was the native language. testament in greek which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations being immediately inspired by god and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages are therefore authentic so as in all controversies of religion the church is finally to appeal to them but because these original tongues are not known to all the people of god who have a right unto an interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to translated into the vulgar language of every nation under which they come, that the word of God, dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. So that's the statement. I know a lot. Back to your statement. That, that, that statement is not saying that uh, the scriptures were kept in one manuscript or that, they were, that, they were, that it was universally available to all Christians at all times. What it's saying is that the, the Bible was immediately inspired and that God preserved the word and that that, that word um, has been kept pure in all ages, not uh, ubiquitously. And so I would say the person who's reading the lectionary To the degree that that lectionary reading, which he was reading, corresponded to the true text, he was having access to the Word of God. Just as now I would say that someone who's reading a translation based on the modern critical text that I might not personally choose to use or use liturgically, to the degree that that text um, reflects the true text, the immediately inspired word of God, and is accurately translated, that person is having access to the word of God. Now, I believe that there was a, a, a providential circumstance in the Reformation and post-Reformation period, during which time, uh, with the invention of the printing press, that uh, the Bible was put into a printed form that gave it much more stability than it had in previous generations. And I think that that's a, a, a much uh, um, more um, uh, useful text and a preferable text. And therefore, you know, that's, that would be the position I hold to. The Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible, the received text of the Greek text, would be uh, a representation of the, of the text that has been kept pure in all ages. Did
2: I answer your question? Um, I don't think we dealt too much into the, the lectionary aspect of it. Uh, the the principle from the Westminster Confession of Faith is is not 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 not. not it's not a question what it says, but but mm-hmm. what I mean me to ask is that to to rephrase, when a person formulating the Westminster Confession of Faith assume that that statement was meant to exclude. Automatically, all the readings in the, le- in the lectionary that didn't agree with their printed compilation, because there were even variations in, in the printed compilations that were know at the time. Well,
1: kind of like what we were saying with the shorter ending of Mark, I would say every every reading in a lectionary or any other type of manuscript that did does not reflect the immediately inspired Word of God uh, would not be Scripture. Now... Yeah. Again, I mean it's a hypoth- it's a hypothetical um, you know, I don't know which lectionary you're talking about, which reading you're talking about. and, okay. and, and, th- this, and, th- and this leads to I think a, a, a fundamental problem with the whole reconstruction reconstruction method. I don't really think you can do that either. I, I don't think you can use um, empirical methods, uh, to sort through all the extant manuscripts, to reconstruct the text, and going back to the previous question to Peter Gurry, it seems to me that modern text criticism has essentially acknowledged that by saying we can't really reconstruct the original text, and so we're, a, we're you, you're shaking your head no, Peter.
3: But I mean, that,
1: to, to,
2: to do that, that what's being got- said?
3: You've got it let's take the three the three most recent critical editions that are printed Tyndall House, the SBL done by Mike Holmes and the Nestle Elon. Three of those were produced under the, the goal of, of the original text. The Nestle 28 has part of it that's been done under this revised goal of the initial text okay so everything else but the Catholic letters and they're still still just reprinting what was done under the you know the old way of doing it their old way of doing it but you've got two out of three that are still, trying to to find the original text explicitly so where I, is the shift
1: so you're telling you're telling me that the that the the persons the editors of the Nesolon 28th edition they would agree with your statement that they are seeking the original text and they would say that what they have there right now is the original
3: text no i explained that earlier i said they would claim in the catholic letters which is the only part that the current editors have edited right is the initial text and they're explicit in the Adidio Critica Maior that they see no reason to think that their initial text in the Catholic letters is different from the author's text. So what's the problem there? But even if that was a problem, you still have two other editions on the market that are done explicitly under the intention of accomplish of, of, of retaining the original text. What's you know, so if you don't like the Nestle, adopt the Tindell edition. Well,
1: there would be problems because there would be problems because in the uh, Nestle On 28th edition, I think they're an error on 2nd Peter 3:10 where they have a conjecture. There would be problems because I think in the Tyndall House Greek New Testament they relegate the pericope adulteri to the footnotes and tell us it's not original to the Word of God. Sure, but, but they're still seeking the original. But, That's but, my but point. Peter, I, I'm I'm surprised because. I, I I don't see I don't see modern scholars whether they're at in Cambridge or whether they're in Munster saying what you what you just said. I, I'm hearing them say, you know, we can't really be sure. I mean, with the Nestle let's put a diamond in there. Let's give yes. three. Four, ah. Let's give let's give several options. Yes, and part of the we problem can't is really right. ascertain what the text is. We can get close to it. We can, we can give you good probability,
3: but we really can't tell you what the text of Scripture is. Oh, I, I think that's a bad mischaracterization of it. But let's say, it's, let's say you're right. Fine. Adopt the Tyndale edition. That's not at all what they're saying. They have a very high view of Scripture, and they're explicitly trying to achieve the original text. So if my point is to say this, this whole thing about the initial text and the original text is a red herring. What you really don't like is people who adopt anything other than the TR. Now, that's fine if that's for your position, but then it's let's true. just say that's your position. I, let's set I, I, I'll, I'll gladly say that. Let's, say, let's set the initial text, original text confusion aside because it's irrelevant. You wouldn't be happy with any text, whether it's James Snapp's or Tyndale's or Maurice Robinson's, because it's not the TR, right? And none of those people I just mentioned Greened. are adopting the initial text as their goal. Maurice Robinson's is, is explicitly after the author's text, Right. So is James Snap. So I really think what's happening is this new term, initial text, and the coherence-based well, genealogical method with it is intimidating, and it's a way to kind of scare people in the pew and, and get them to think, ah, oh, the scholars who are in Germany, of all places, are, are messing with your Bible, and they don't even think they can get to the original anymore. And therefore, all text criticism is bad, and you have to adopt the TR. And I want to say, why, even, even if you were right— about the intentions or the the improper goals of the folks in munster germany that's fine you know cross the pond it's not that far and go to the tyndale edition right hey let's go. the real problem is with critical texts period uh, right? james
1: not with say some text. say a, give a follow-up maybe uh, yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, uh, I, I do want to get back to the question about lectionaries but but jumping ahead, ahead them, then we can we can leapfrog back um if you go online and just look for the uh Look for reactions to Epp's uh, work and, and other guys' work on the uh, multivalence or multivalence, I think is one way to say it, of the uh, term original text. And that, uh, look, look on how people have responded to that within the field, and you'll find some people saying, okay, I guess we've got to give up on looking for the original text because all we have is the initial text, and we, we think that there's this gap that we just can't find, we just don't have the means to find it, so we'll just aim, we'll, 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 we'll just... Aim for a, a closer target, and um, and there there are some definite uh, affirmations uh, floating around out there where, where guys are, are saying, um, okay, we're going to redefine uh, what we're looking for, and just sure. think of the think, think of the development of the text as a, a theological map. We we're, we're going to map variants to see what theological influences were, and that's all still very interesting. But that's abandoning the uh, quest for the original text, so that is a real concern. Can we, can we go back to the lectionary question now? <laughs> uh, you, you, you mentioned I think specific, we've exhausted it, James. <laughs> a specific case would be a Luke, Luke 731. Uh, it's in the TR. It's not in the majority text. It's not in very many manuscripts. Uh, if you've got Swanson handy, you can look up and see how, how weak the evidence for it is. Uh, looks a whole lot like one of those insipid phrases from a lectionary. Um, but it, even though it's in the electionary, it's not supported by the majority of the traditional text. There's, there's lots of points in history where you can say, okay, if this is the preserved in all ages text, where is it once you get back to a certain point? you've got to just okay say well, we don't we don't see it. Now understandable in say the, the first or second century where we just don't have that many manuscripts, but move ahead into the Middle Ages and it's not there, it seems like the only validation you can possibly have for keeping that phrase at the beginning of Luke 7.32 is to say, it's gotta be, because God preserved it. But do you see how that works out kind of circula- into a circular argument?
1: I, I, can, I can
2: understand
1: how you could possibly give that as a charge, but again i think it's it's it'd be fundamental to the confessional text position to say and I, as i said at the beginning it's an affirmation of a text that was received providentially during the time of the reformation a key time and uh, it never suggests that it's the majority text position or that it was a it was a preserved in all ages doesn't mean that it was um, available to all Christians at, at all times ubiquitously. Um, it, sometimes, as I said before, the, the, the readings are ones that are only found in a minority of, of traditions and in a few rare cases even only preserved uh, by virginal witnesses. But um, anyway, it was, the, it was the text that was I think validated during the time of the Protestant Reformation. And I think we've also got a problem, like I said, in trying to reconstruct anything, in that we only have, you know, we only have a sliver of what has existed. And, um, you know, I, I read uh, when I was at the Texan Canon Conference last uh, October, I, I read a quote from Gurry and Wasserman's um, book. Uh, in which they uh, talked about the difficulties, the challenges, just historically of attempting to reconstruct anything, given the palcity of evidence. And um, if I could uh, read just a little bit of what they said, this is from Peter Gurry and Tommy Wasserman's book on the CBGM. They said, "This page 12. What is left behind are fragments." chance survivals from the past. We are trying to piece together the puzzle with only some pieces. In the case of textual criticism, this means that we have only a selection of the manuscripts that once existed and sometimes incomplete scripts. And, and then they go on to uh, say, it is more like a watercolor painting of a great national park than a topographical map. We might be able to identify key landmarks from the watercolor, but we would not want to use it to find our way
3: through the forest. Yeah, Can I clarify that, Jeff? Sure. Because I have a feeling you're going to go somewhere it was not intended. (laughs) (laughs) When we're saying it's a watercolor, right, what are we talking about? Is a watercolor. Are we saying the original text is a watercolor? No, we're not. What we're saying is attempts to map the relationship of manuscripts genealogically, that map is more like a watercolor map than a detailed topographic map of how our manuscripts are related. So we're not, if if that quote is given in, in the context of saying, see, they don't think we can get the original text, that's just a misreading of what we're saying. What we're talking about is genealogy, right, and attempts to map the relationship of manuscripts that we have, which is something that's been done for hundreds of years in text criticism, right, and what we're warning against people is saying, hey, these diagrams in the CBGM look really detailed. Be careful that you don't read them as some kind of, you know, photocopy of what actually happened, right? They're not. They're not that—they can't be that specific because we've lost too many too many manuscripts in the process. And, and again, the problem, we don't know how many we've lost, right? Well, here, but that's I, not I can, a metaphor I, about the original text. I, I,
1: can, I can test out the authorial intent, intent because I'm talking to the author— and so I, 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 I so, appreciate I appreciate your clarification there, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but yeah. but in the context, though, you were also talking about the paucity of evidence. Sure, we no only have I mean, some. Of the, we only have some of the pieces, right. and it's,
3: it's something. Some of the pieces really for what, though, Jeff? Some of the pieces for what?
1: What's the some, puzzle in our some, metaphor? Some of the pieces for reconstructing the text. No, no,
3: no. Some of the puzzles for reconstructing the relationship of manuscripts. But isn't that reconstructing the no, text? No, we c- you can reconstruct the text without knowing how every single manuscript is related to every other single manuscript. Of course you can. Yeah. The better we can do it, the better confidence we might but, have. But isn't
1: the, purpose of, isn't the purpose of reconstructing the relationships among manuscripts to trace a line of descent to get back to,
3: as close as you can, the original? If you know who my parents are, does it matter that you don't know who their grandchildren are? We're not talking about people. We're talking about manuscripts. Ah, uh, but we're talking about genealogy of manuscripts, right? So if you know who my parents are, does it matter if you don't know how their grandchildren are related? So is the
1: purpose is the purpose in a CBGM just to describe existing manuscripts?
3: and well, what not- else could it be?
1: Well, what it it could be, what it would have been in the 20th century was an attempt to to discover the autograph.
3: Uh, Well, that's your initial text. So the one reconstructed text in the CBGM, as you may know, is what? Is the initial text. So there is one reconstructed text in the CBGM, and it is the initial text, which, again, the, uh, the editors of the ECM are explicit in saying they think there is no reason to think there is a gap between their reconstructed initial text, the A text, and the author's text. You might think there's a reason to think there's a gap, but they don't. So, you know, that's but that's up to you. Yeah.
2: Uh, along the way to that text, though, is the extrapolation of relationships among manuscripts.
3: Which is very important. I'm not trying to deny that, right? I'm just saying it sounds like Jeff wants to read our metaphor there as the painting or the puzzle is the original text, and it's not. In the metaphor we're trying to use there, the the painting or the puzzle is that map of manuscript relationships, right? In some textual traditions of, say, classical authors, you can you can develop quite a detailed uh, genealogical map. Right? I mean, I, I was, was focusing
1: category. more. I, I was focusing more on your your emphasis in that passage, and I, we don't have to parse what you wrote. It's what you wrote, but your your emphasis in on the in that passage on actually how little evidence we have you say in the case of textual criticism that this means that we only have a selection of the manuscripts that once existed right and sometimes incomplete
3: manuscripts and this is it seems to we still have a lot right and you only need one good one to have a good text as i always try to remind my students of that right it's easy to think oh if only we had 10 more manuscripts well i mean sure who which of us wouldn't want more manuscripts and more evidence to look at but to have a good authoritative text, you only need one good authoritative manuscript, right? And I think we have mm-hmm. more than that.
1: Agreed. Agreed. That's why. That's why I believe, with regard to affirmation, in the textus receptus, that looking at the empirical evidence and finding that uh, a passage isn't doesn't have a lot of ex- extant external support doesn't necessarily negate its value or its authenticity. But what if there's no. a lot but, of but, but,
2: but evidence but with, re,
1: but with re, this, But I see this as a challenge, and I see, I, you know, you guys are both, you're, you're both are approaching things from a reconstructionist um, position. I'm the only person here that's not coming from a reconstructionist position, but a preservationist position. But this seems to be a fundamental problem with the reconstruction method is you, you only have the things that are extant to study. And, you know, when it comes to, I, I, I read, uh, in, in thinking about getting together today, I read James's very helpful recent article on the Coma Ioneum. And, you know, there are only, what, five manuscripts? This is the the First John five, five seven, and, and that's
3: not a lot. I mean, I want to base a position on what we don't have, though. It seems well, I'm just to saying, base i just, what we I, do have. I'm but just, just saying. I think, I think a lot
1: of people who are laymen, um, when we talk about this, a lot of times they're thinking, well, there are thousands of manuscripts that exclude the the coma that are. You know, and we have ones
3: from the first century, the second century, the third century. And what would we need to convince you it's not original, Jeff? Because I, I kind of suspect there's nothing that would, right? Your <laughs> Probably not. I yeah, mean So why because, does it matter? It's a red herring.
1: Well, no, it matters because the the point is that there's not enough extant evidence empirically to
3: verify. But what, what is what is authentic? Look, and, uh, well, and why so would why should be, you get to tell me how much evidence is enough? I mean, we have hundreds of manuscripts that don't have it in Greek, and none of them are pre Middle Ages, right? So I think
1: we don't have hundreds. I mean, we we most of them are most of them are after the, after the tenth century. Well, yeah, there are okay, so, I mean, five like, like, seven
3: hundred. Yeah. So I'm yeah, just but, saying it's but not. But then there are hundreds after that. But then there are hundreds after that that don't have it. Hundreds. So, if you want to say the text has been kept here in all Not ages, it's maybe a 250. I think.
2: No, no, we have we have over 500 manuscripts. At just first. just to regarding the quantities involved, uh, yeah. yeah, about about five have it in the text, and there are little quirks, mm-hmm. even within that text, of whether they do have the articles or that they don't. So, if you're looking and you're saying. If, if you're going to say that the Westminster Confession of Faith requires this this the Comma johannium to be preserved exactly down to the last detail, the form must be kept pure in all ages, and that means exact replication. Then no, it doesn't
1: you know, mean that's that's the problem though. That kept so, pure well, in all ages from a from a confessional perspective doesn't mean replicated exactly. In so all you're ages. saying it
2: doesn't refer to the exact replication of the text? Doesn't mean just a uh, something that gets across the gist of it?
1: And no, means it, it the divine preservation of it, that God preserved it, but even, the, if, you have, even, if, you even if you don't have, even if you don't have, even if you don't have, even if you don't have an extant
3: replication
2: of it. Um, so would you, are, is your position, just no, Wait, 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 sorry, wait, go ahead. Just a moment. How can you say that you're a preservationist when you're arguing for readings that are not preserved? They are preserved. they They're have not the Greek preserved. text. We're talking about a Greek text. That's what the Westminster Confession of Faith is talking about, isn't it? Well, does they it were, say the Greek text, they, except where it's not preserved in the Greek, but it is preserved in these little, vari- these little passages that, that we kind of like. That's not what it says. It's talking about exact replication. If you're going to say on doctrinal grounds, it's been kept pure in all ages, and that means the exact form. How can you then just? throw away all the Greek evidence that you have that point in a different direction. It, Might be means
1: it, it means that it was preserved providentially so that it, it, so that it could be preserved in a text that would be printed in, during the Reformation and post-Reformation period, become the basis for all the vernacular translations How of the Bible, up with become, this become useful in the spread of the us. Gospel. Was it the Syriac Sorry. vernacular but, translation? But you, we're, we're, the point wasn't, James, to talk about the number of manuscripts that hold the, the coma. Actually, it is preserved, that particular example, in some extant manuscripts. The point was to talk about the paucity of early manuscripts of any sort that arises to First John. And, you know, I, I, this settled on me a couple of years ago when I heard Dan Wallace talking about the coma yoaneum, and um, at the time I hadn't looked much at it and don't consider myself an expert necessarily about it now, but I simply asked him, well, how many, how many manuscripts do we have? How many early manuscripts do we have of First John in a Q and A, uh, in a presentation? And at the time he wasn't able to give me an answer. So it, went me, you know, it sent me looking to see, well, they're, how they're many early hard. how many early texts do we have? And then I discovered, with with regard to the papyri that we have only two extant papyri of First John period, and neither of them uh, include First John five seven and eight. So the truth is, in the first four hundred years of Christianity, we have no extant Greek manuscript witnesses to 1st oh. to first John. So, 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 Jeff, so, you, so, is, you, so that so that means it can't mean, preservation can't mean what you said a second ago because according to what what you put forward, there would have to be exact replication, 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd no, century, 4th no, century. I, I mean, so Jeff, means so obviously means,
3: it doesn't hold on. Mean,
0: hey, let Peter have
1: Jeff, a chance position, yeah.
3: A position, to yeah. This means, Jeff, that your position, if I understand what I'm hearing right, seems to me that this requires that your position is that God preserved the Kama Yohaneum in manuscripts that he did not preserve for us. In other words, well, he me- preserved it for us only in these five or so manuscripts no. that James referenced. And then for you, in the printed edition, which my understanding is the printed edition kind of trumps everything else as far as you're concerned. But you're, what you're suggesting is, hey, we don't have hardly any manus- early manuscripts of First John. So how do we know it wasn't preserved in those manuscripts? And my response is to say, we know it wasn't preserved in manuscripts we don't have, and therefore God didn't preserve it, so it hasn't been kept pure in all ages. Because we have evidence from all ages, and it's not there. Right? So either either your position is, it's been kept pure in all ages, but in some cases we can't actually prove, we can't actually show that it was kept pure, or, or what? I mean, is that your position, just that we can't know that it wasn't not preserved, and therefore we sh- we should assume that it was preserved. We that's can know
1: by we can know by virtue of it being autopistos, ah. of, of it being of, of it being self-authenticating. Who's that's the how we? we that's how we know that's how we know that's Who's how we know. We that, that though. That that's how we know anything about the authority of Scripture. We don't we don't believe in the Bible because we look at the empirical evidence and see. If it was well attested throughout Christian history, it's so, because the Scripture itself is self-authenticating. Right, and but it's
3: self-authenticating not to like it didn't self-authenticate to me. So how how do we how do we adjudicate that when say Martin Luther, for example, rejects the comma right? So does Erasmus, who's the fountainhead of the Texas Receptus. He explicitly rejects it. Doesn't have it in his first two edition, and then when he finally does put it in, he still. <laughs> In his annotation is clear, he thinks this is secondary, right? This is not original. How but, it, but how in the providence of God,
1: but in the providence of God he did include it in fifteen twenty-two in the third edition, and Luther and, and Luther used the earlier editions and then yeah. later on within Lutheranism, when they saw the threats of anti-Trinitarian and Socinianism. Right. um it, it. They did affirm the, the so, coma. So Lutherans so would your position be then that, affirmed the yeah, coma, actually. So, it's,
3: it's, would your position then be a text that is useful in theological debate is self authenticating?
1: Uh, that's not what I said. I mean, that's I what know, you
3: but, said. Yeah, no, right. But is that I, why I, would, is say, that position? I would
1: say uh, that a passage that is inspired by God and is self authenticating will evidence a tenacity that will mean that it will be preserved within the text and i think and i think we can use I man like again i said my position is different from yours and from James's in that i'm a confessional reformed christian right. and i believe that the the westminster savoy second london tradition right. is the best articulation of right. biblical doctrine and If I look at if I look at the Savoy, uh, the the Westminster Savoy and Second London and I look at chapter two on the doctrine of God and it uses the coma as a proof text for articulating a doctrine of of God. If I affirm the confession, then uh, I have to take a conscientious exception um, if I don't affirm that first John five seven is right. part of the Word of God.
2: All that would mean is that the formulators of the text were, were either the formulators of the text were wrong, are all the copyists of the manuscripts, except the ones that have been clearly, I mean, it's obvious, influenced by Latin. Uh, I mean, just look at it. I mean, Elijah Hicks had, had, had pictures online. They're, they're still there. And uh, my blog site, you can list them chapter by chapter, and see, in every age, the text of 1 John 5-7 does not have the comma. If we're going to aim for, let's get the preserved text, even before we start to investigate rival readings from different text types, to, to work our way back to, what is the Byzantine reading here? Look at the Byzantine manuscripts, and it's clear the Byzantine text of 1 John 5-7 does not include the comma you uh, just look at the manuscripts. If we were to rewind, like, like, okay, time machine, press the button, go back to the day before Johann Gutenberg invents the printing press. There hasn't been any creed made yet. No, none of those conventional statements have been made yet. If you don't have that, and you don't have the printed text, and, not, and you don't have the ability to make a printed text, if all that you have is the manuscript evidence up till the day before Johann G- Gutenberg makes the printing press, how in the world do you come up with your position?
1: Because it's not a reconstructionist position, but where do you, and the, so and so the point, is the it, point, sir? the point that I was, and the point that I was making was not about the manuscript evidence that supports the coma. The point simply that I was making was what Peter Gurry and Tommy Wasserman um, were talking about in the statement that I read earlier was that. We don't have a lot of extant evidence.
2: Well, that's not and what we said. Well, well no, well, we you, you, haven't we you we have a lot. That. <laughs> <laughs> we have well, a lot.
1: You, you said this means we only have a selection of manuscripts that once well, existed. That and sometimes incomplete manuscripts.
3: But a selection could still be a lot. I mean, 500 manuscripts don't, is a lot.
1: But we don't. Well, let's take, let's take the early mm-hmm. evidence for, again, the it we, we could take almost any example. Because we have we have we have so little for the for First John, um,
3: again two papyri.
2: I wouldn't call 500 manuscripts little,
3: but I would yeah I would not either.
2: Well, you know, and
1: early, part of the, part of the early early
3: evidence. But well, part of the assumption, Jeff, is that oh, why, why consider if we discover early manuscripts, they mm. might have the comma in them, right? Which for your position, as you're saying, is confessional, so it wouldn't actually matter to you one way or the other. You're just trying to push the question back on my side, and I get this, right? You're trying to say, hey, on your own view, realize how selective you're evidence is, so what gives you the right to tell me that, that we don't have evidence for this? And the res- part, part of the response to this needs to be the, the late manuscripts attest the early text, right? So the late manuscripts of First John attest overwhelmingly the same text as our papyri. So there's every reason to think that if our late manuscripts, of which we have hundreds of them, do not have the comma johannium in them, then there's every reason to think that the other early manuscripts wouldn't either. do You see. Oh well, yeah,
1: I, that's I, quite I, a simple. I, I, see, I see that. That's I see that. That's your theory. But I, that doesn't. That doesn't. But you can't definitively prove that. But I don't need to
3: definitively okay. prove it because nothing okay. would definitively prove it to you. That's that's part of the point, I guess. But like, even uh, even uh, if so, even,
1: but but even if you could ste- if you could step outside of your presuppositions for a moment and think yeah. hypothetically yeah. you know, what if it was what if it was corrupted in, listen what if, I, what if it, it was corrupted in the 3rd century listen, and you only and and you only received a line of transmission that excluded it for theological sure. reasons or i could say what about the fact that it was preserved in many latin manuscripts that were based on on uh, Greek manuscripts that are no longer extant. So we're we're into we're into the circle of hypotheticals, reconstructions. No. And this no, is, and, and, this is, we are. and this is why this is why we have the situation with modern text criticism that Correct. says yeah. we can't we can't articulate what the original text says. All we can do is give you is the initial text yeah. and, and so
3: that that I shows i think
0: back. the failure let's of reconstruction method. That's, <laughs> that's not good okay back. yeah i think Can let's I ask a question yeah go
3: ahead in your, and i would really like to hear your answer on this given your position on your your own position being confessional right so yeah. the impression i've gotten from talking to confessional bibliologists is that there's no evidence that could change your conclusion cuz your conclusion doesn't start from evidence right is in your mind is there any point in people on your side actually talking to people on my side. Because usually when it comes down to it, I just I get this response that, well, we're confessional and you just don't understand our presuppositions, which to me sounds a lot like just saying, hey, you're never going to understand us until you accept our view, at which point then I want to say, well, okay, then f- fair, fine if that's your view, but then there's no point in us actually talking about it. Does that make sense? Would you disagree with that? Or do I hear you, you some but,
1: point? but I mean, don't you want to convince me of your
3: position? I mean, I no. You don't? I mean, I would like to, but I, I don't have any hopes, and it's, I mean, frankly, I've got a full time job and stuff, so I'm bigger. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I mean
1: like- I'm not, I'm not, I haven't lost you know that much sleep <laughs> over over you know your personal convictions about this, right. but I mean, but I mean, I I I, I do think it is. Uh, I mean, I don't I don't think it's an insignificant matter. I mean, this is about the, we're talking about scripture, we're talking about right. the word of God, and I think it does have huge implications pastorally experientially right. um, you know we we're, we're talking about let's let's go back let's go back to the Tyndall house creek new testament
3: yeah
1: is the pericope adulterae part of the word of god or not no they have relegated it to
3: the footnotes i mean do you think that do you yeah, think see, the woman- that's the assumption they've relegated it to the footnotes where I could just as well say, but your Bible elevates it to the Word of God, where it shouldn't be, see? So let me, you let me already ask you. you the conclusion. Aside from any
1: theoretical discussions of yeah. that, do you think that the pericope adulteri is Scripture? I do not. You do not?
3: So, see, you and I are in the same position, right? You think I'm reading a text that is faulty at that point, and I think you are reading a text that is faulty at that point and several others, Right.
0: Okay. So let me, let me so my ask question
3: you to some, you is, is there any point in us even discussing it yeah. if the presuppositions are so significant that I can't even seem to understand your position, or at least I can't even, like, Do you see what I'm saying? Like, every time I talk to confessional bibliologists, there's, there usually comes a point where they say, it's because I'm confessional, right? And I say, I get that, and I'm trying to say that your confession is wrong at this one point. But to them, it doesn't matter because they are confessional, and to be confessional means, as you said— to accept all of it or none of it, it seems. And so I just want to say, I think, you know, the London Baptist Confession is great. I don't think it's perfect. I think scripture is perfect and no confession is perfect. So it doesn't bother me a great deal to be able to say the London Baptist Confession and the Westminster Confession are wrong at this point. I mean, I, you know, I'm a Baptist, so I happen to think the Westminster Confession is wrong at other points as well, <laughs> as do you. So it doesn't trouble my conscience to disagree with a confession, even... Even one as good and venerated as as the Westminster Confession?
1: Well two, two uh, things two things quickly. First of all, I don't the, the confession is a subordinate standard. Okay. I mean I, I could talk more about why I think that the, it's a scriptural position as well. Preservation is, and I know that was one of the that was one of the points that you That's raised right. earlier, because you said you don't think that there is a biblical basis for the doctrine ridiculous. of preservation. Well what I was going so, to so,
2: yeah.
1: yeah. So so anyway, so the, the, the confession is a subordinate standard of scripture. I believe in providential preservation because I think it's a scriptural principle simply articulated uh, w- within the confession. Right. Um, but, I mean, it is, uh, a, a, you know, it, it is a, a, a foundational and fundamental issue. What is scripture? What is the text of scripture? Well, uh, it doesn't get more any, any, you know, more basic than that.
2: Yeah, sorry, uh, on the question of what is scripture, um, clearly, what is genuinely scripture was scripture before the invention of the printing press. But it seems like if you define things according to the Westminster Confession of Faith, saying that "pure" means the form, not just the message, but the form. Not that, for instance, uh, there there are there are variants where lots of manuscripts will say "he said." But the TR might say, Jesus said. Just like the NIV will sometimes spruce things up and make it more specific. It's a natural tendency. <laughs> um, without the printing press in the equation, okay, we're well, just going make, to make Gutenberg disappear. How do you come up with your position? Because it seems like whenever I look at Confession of Bibliology, it's completely interchangeable with the TR is always right, and the TR exists because of the printing press. Take the printing press out of the equation, and how do you possibly reach the position that every reading in the TR is always always right? Because when you when you you said uh, I believe something like uh, when you're reading the copies, you're reading the original. Well, if you read the copies of First John, no CJ, in the, except for the ones that are influenced by, by by Latin. When you look at Latin, you can see the CJ follows like a puppy dog the transposition that comes along in verse eight. And you can see, and for this part I have to throw you to, to my blog articles, the five, five essays on the common johannium, uh, starting with uh, Cyprian and, and the common johannium, where, where you can see how it would naturally arise as a gloss, an interpretation of the three, what we know in, with, with, with the CJ as the, the earthly witnesses, throwing an, an, an allegorical interpretation on that, once they're transposed to water, blood, and spirit. After that transposition comes into place, Then comes the interpretation, oh, water is the father, blood, obviously the son, and spirit, obviously the spirit. And we see that happening in Old Latin. We don't see it happening in Greek. We don't see it happening anywhere where the transposition doesn't happen. So you can pretty easily zoom in on that transposition and see how the C.J. emanates from the same transmission line, which isn't in Greek, in other words, isn't in the original text, but is in the Old Latin, a text which is known for glosses.
0: Okay, so I'm going to jump in here. real Or did you have a you had one thought after yeah, that, James, that you wanted you to, to finish you there? Said
1: how, you, you said how you said does preservation work without the printing press?
0: Yes.
2: Well, well, well. How how do how, how do you arrive at your position without the printing press in the equation? Well, did, I would say, say the Holy, I would say the Holy Spirit
1: is in the equation. That the, the Christ promised that the Spirit, the Comforter, would bring to our remembrance all the things spoken by Christ, and and, and so it's not a matter uh, of um, it's not a matter of reconstruction. It's not a matter of that. It's a matter of the spirit bringing to the remembrance and authenticating. Wait, wait, wait. Exa- authenticating exactly how, how does that
2: happens without without trans- without making copies. How does without, it happen? You know, without the manuscripts, making how do you get how do you get to that point of saying we well, just recollected? We Re- recollected from where?
1: From reading the text of
2: Manuscripts, right? Without the, without the printing press in the equation, you read it from manuscripts. Well, when manuscripts don't support the TR reading, where do you go with that? Why well, do you maintain a position that's not maintained from the evidence?
1: You, you've you you've made a judgment based on the extent evidence that a reading does or doesn't support no, the, the uh, TR. Not, not so much and, a judgment and, as an
2: observation. An observation. I looked at the manuscripts so, so you're it's using, you're
1: using a. You're using a reconstruction method and what I'm saying is you, you, you can't empiric, you can't empirically reconstruct the extant evidence.
3: Jeff, do you think that the TR is a reconstruction of something? Do I think the TR is a yeah. reconstruction? Yeah, not done by you, I realize, but by someone else. Well, I mean th- I think there was a
1: prov- there was a providential process which the printed TR came into existence. Okay, so and that, I assume that process has stopped. Yeah, that process. I that I'm is not. Done.
3: I'm not. Even though I'm a text critic, right. and I'm doing reconstruction for I don't know what reasons, but I'm not. I don't get to be part of that. Is that right? No. Okay. And you did don't. people before Erasmus get to be part of that reconstructive,
1: inspired well, process? People before Erasmus. When.
3: It, like anytime, anytime. The Apostle, was the apostles, the apostles? wrote the scriptures. No, and I'm talking so. about reconstruction, though. You yeah. said the TR is a reconstructed text, right? I said it's a
1: providentially preserved yeah. text. Oh, but
3: is it a reconstructed
1: text? It was providentially preserved by divine means.
2: But based on what? And are those means? Used manuscripts? Right? Yeah, cuz well, well, nope.
3: manuscripts, and he didn't just reprint one. Well, there were there were there were persons like
1: Erasmus, like Stephanus, like Beza, who were influential in printing the Texas Receptus. But it was a there were there were providential. God was involved in preserving the word.
3: So if God can be involved in preserving an authoritative text, sure. So if God can be involved in their judgments, I mean they had to make judgments at various points, right? And sometimes they disagree, as we know. Sometimes Erasmus changed his own text. Beza has a different text than Erasmus at times. Uh, Stephanus, for example, in in, in the, the uh, text I wrote about at the blog recently in Matthew, he has one reading in his 1550 edition and a different reading in his 1551. Right. Mm-hmm. So, but but all of them have but all of them have
1: the woman taken in adultery. Right.
3: Is that so the deciding thought, one? Sorry. Is that the deciding one? If they well, got that right it's, is it's, that
1: it? It's it's one or, example. I mean, you were using you you were using minor differences between printed editions as, as an example of inconsistency. I have the pericope adulterae and I mean, you're in the position of saying it's not scripture.
3: Yeah, um, but let's not let's not get distracted by that cuz I want to try to I'm trying to ask you think they had to make judgments, right? They had different manuscripts, and sometimes they had one reading, sometimes they had another. In a case like Stephanus, he changes his mind within a year. Um, why do they get to make decisions, and we don't? Do you see the question? Words, are they in some kind of privileged position where it's okay for Stephanus to change his mind about the text, but it's not okay for me? Well, I think they were de- I I don't
1: think there's. I don't think there's any doubt. And you, as a fellow evangelical, I think would agree with me that the time of the reformation was a providentially pivotal time in the history of christianity why not it in was, text
3: criticism though why would that have, what does that have to do with text you criticism? don't you don't think it was a providential time in the history of text criticism providential i don't think it was any better than you know the discovery of codex vaticanus if i had to pick a point i'd probably go there you know
1: well, I mean that's not surprising because you're you hold to you hold to a reconstruction model. Well, my so point you, is, how would so, I decide? So, I mean, why
3: why would I need to pick? I guess is my question. Why would I well, need to pick? what, what one I'm one. Say,
1: what I'm what I'm saying, Peter, is I believe that uh, the time of the Reformation mm-hmm. was a more significant time for the providential preservation of the Scripture, the, the true text of Scripture, than the 19th century when. Enlightenment influenced scholars developed the reconstruction model
3: and discovered, uh, you know. So does the, something does, does something if, fundamentally change the Reformation that we're not allowed to do it anymore? That's my question. Because Stephanus is al- in your view, Stephanus is allowed to change his mind on the text. Be- between fifteen fifteen well, fifty one, you're to, okay with uh, that? Again, we have to look at specific examples of what you're
1: no, talking about. Well, no, i one. But I mean, well, I've got what one.
3: I, but what we I can would look at one.
1: But what I would say is, is, that, is that there was agreement in the, in the printed TR manuscripts on things like the ending of Mark, on things like the pericope adulteri, on things like the doxology in the Lord's
3: Prayer. But I'm asking in principle. I mean, I'm uh, not, you know, it seems to be that if, if, as long as it has the woman caught in adultery, therefore it's okay. But if it rearranges the order of Matthew 23 to 13 to 14— well, that's fine because they still have the pericope adultery Is that what you're saying? No, I'm I'm saying I'm saying it's a tendency of
1: reconstructionists to exaggerate the differences in the printed TR. And but that's not I'm, what I'm doing. I'm not trying to exaggerate anything. What I'm saying is that I do think that there was definitely a, a providential move of God during that time. I mean, think about what happened. The reclamation of the doctrine of justification by faith, the the, re, the retrieval of apostolic Christianity, I, I think that was a watershed in the history of Christianity as a confessional reform person. Sure. I, I, I don't think the nineteenth century I'm in the twenty first uh, and, and, and the and the, the development of the modern historical critical method holds a candle but, but uh, to this to is what I'm the asking. I'm, the I'm, I'm, I'm
3: trying to ask if Stephanus can change his mind...